Hey there, friends. Jay Revel here. Welcome to another edition of Mid-Am Crisis. I've got a wonderful conversation for you today. I think you're going to really like listening to this. I've got my friend Will Smith joining the program. Will is the co-founder of the National Lynx Trust. They are doing incredible work in the Washington, D.C. area to preserve, protect, and uh, promote the game through uh, the, I guess you would say, maybe reestablishment of the identities uh, of three really special golf courses uh, in that community. Uh, these are the golf courses that are owned by the National Park Service, East Potomac Park, uh, Langston, and Rock Creek. Uh, they have now secured a long-term lease for those properties and are in the midst of really just totally changing how uh, those golf offerings are going to be presented to that community while also maintaining a priority of keeping it affordable and accessible uh, and open to really anyone who wants to learn and enjoy the game there. It's really cool. I've just, I, that, that entire movement that Will and uh, his partners have created there is, is really something that I think you're going to want to keep your eye on. Will also uh, is intimately involved with a very, very cool uh, group called the Outpost Club. He's a co-founder of the Outpost Club. This is really one of the, the first societies, uh, a golf club without a course, so to speak, that has taken off in America. You've seen a lot of those models really uh, try to replicate that uh, approach here recently. But Will and uh, his team with the Outpost Club have done a wonderful job. They've been featured in the Golfer's Journal, and uh, they're very vibrant on social media. You can follow along that journey. It's, it's just really cool. I love that conversation where we went from talking about the work in D.C. to the vision for Outpost Club and really just the approach to a golfing life uh, that Will has that I, I just find really uh, enjoyable to speak with him about. So uh, I think you're going to love this conversation with Will. I appreciate you tuning in as always. If you're enjoying the show, I hope you will leave uh, a review on whatever your preferred listening platform is. Uh, tell your friends. Be sure to subscribe. Uh, help us get the word out if you can. And as always, you can follow along with uh, this podcast and other things that I'm working on over at my website uh, at jrevel.com. I hope you will do so. And uh, without further ado, I'm going to turn this conversation over because uh, it's uh, just really one I think you're going to enjoy. Uh, Will's got a great understanding of what makes the game matter to people. And uh, I, I loved talking with him about it. So, Without further ado, here is Will Smith. Will. Hey, Jay. How you doing, buddy? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Just uh, another uh, winter day here in Florida, hoping to find my way to the golf course sooner rather than later, but... Um, you know, we're, we're, we're making it through, uh, uh, the new year so far. So good. Can't complain. Excellent. I, I'm heading down to East Potomac, uh, here this afternoon for a meeting, but might, might take my sticks and try to hit, hit a few balls. Uh, always encourageable. Uh, how are things in our nation's capital? Uh, good, good. Uh, things are, things are a little bit calmer, a little bit less tense, um, a chopper did just fly over my head, but I'm sure that's just <laughs> nothing to worry about. That's a pretty standard issue. But uh, yeah, no, you, you guys have some new residents down there in Florida, and uh, we got some new residents here in D.C., so 
you know, we'll see. We'll That's see it. Yeah, yeah. We're 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 all the crazy flow south, you know. So uh, uh, everything shakes out down here in the Sunshine State. So um, yeah, it certainly seemed like y'all had quite the eventful uh, few weeks up there, and um, I'm sure that now that you're in the uh, golf operations business, uh, that was interesting to keep an eye on. Yeah, so we, you know, we shut down the three courses um, on the sixth as everything was going on. Got our uh, staff home and safe, and uh, and then last Friday we got we woke up and and uh, our GM said, hey, there's a tent in our in our parking lot down at East Potomac, and um, you know there's cots and bathroom and communication stuff, and so we thought, oh, this is great. We're gonna have some some on-site free security, and then about an hour later we got an email saying. Actually, we're shutting off access to East Potomac uh, through through inauguration day, and um, at the earliest, we'll be back opening up uh, Thursday the twenty first. And um, so that was an unexpected um, uh, uh, little little wrench in the works, but um, and we lost out on a good weekend of weather. And um, you know, obviously Monday was a holiday, and Wednesday was a holiday in DC, um, but obviously pretty much no one was moving around. So. Uh, you know, it was, you know, we're, we're happy to be on the other side of it and, uh, looking forward to welcoming people back to the golf courses and, um, should, you know, it's been, it's been, uh, we started operations in October and, you know, it's been busy. So it's been great. Well, it's, it's certainly, um, you know, any golf operation is unique and, and, and usually pretty interesting, but, you know, for the, the three courses that you're all now running right there in the heart of DC, um, I'm sure you get, uh, you know, obviously you had, you had quite a few curveballs coming your way last week, but, uh, no doubt you'll get more as time goes on, but that's, that's all part of the fun, right? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Um, well, you know, for, um, I, I feel like I've seen so much, you know, from, from you and, uh, some of your compatriots up there with the national links trust over the last year, you know, I felt like y'all did a great job sort of, um, you know, putting your flag out there and saying, Hey, this is, you know, uh, a project that's near and dear to our heart, something we really want to take on. And, um, you know, I, I, I have such great admiration for y'all cause you know, you framed it up as a long shot and then, and then you won the bid. Um, how was that whole journey been for you? I mean, I, I would imagine, um, you probably wake up a little bit, you know, somewhere between pinching yourself and, you know, wanting to cry, right. A few, few days here and there. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, people keep saying we've got a, a tiger by the tail. Um, so <laughs> it's, uh, you know, there's a lot of potential and it's a really great project. And um, but it's it, it's a lot. I mean, it's three three urban golf courses that um, basically uh, has basically very little infrastructure investment has been happened in the last 30 years. And so, you know, we've got we've got a lot of work to do in front of us. Um, you know, just to give you a little background, you know, Mike McCartan, and I, we met at the University of Georgia. Um, we were both in graduate school, getting our master's in landscape architecture, both uh, aspiring golf course architects, um, both from DC. Uh, Mike wrote his thesis about East Potomac Park and, you know, something that was near and dear to his heart. And, you know, you know I'm a born and raised guy from DC and really care about golf and golf in my city. And um, when we heard that the National Park Service was potentially issuing a, a long-term lease um, for uh, the three DC courses, uh, Rock Creek, Langston, and East Potomac, we, um, you know, we, we sort of said, okay, well, what can we do to make sure that the right thing happens at these golf courses? Rock Creek is 
an, an original William Flynn design. Uh, uh, East Potomac is, is the first 18 holes was a reversible Walter Travis course, his homage to St. Andrews. And it's just an incredible spot with uh, the Washington Monument being the line off of a number of tees. Um, and then Langston, which was built um, in 1939, the front nine was built in 1939 because uh, African-Americans didn't, weren't allowed to play at the other golf courses in the city. Um, and has since then been sort of the heart and soul of, of black golf in, in, in America. And it's just got this incredible history. All three courses are on the National Register of Historic Places. Um, and we were concerned that um, uh, if, if a group came in and didn't really understand that incredible history, that they would turn uh, these courses into something um, different that didn't respect these histories, that was more um, elite, less affordable, less accessible. And, you know, we started out just trying to tell the story of, of what these places were and what they can be. Um, pretty, pretty early on in that process, we realized that uh, the best way to do that would be to, to put together a team and respond to this, to this RFP. And um, that's what we did. I, I remember going back, you know, when you first sort of started talking about this, I read uh, Michael's, I guess that was his uh, thesis paper from Georgia uh, yeah. about East Potomac, which was a wonderful document. Um, and then again, you know, you, you hit the nail on the head, you're talking about storytelling. Y'all did such a great job of telling the story early and often that I think you just generated a tremendous amount of interest or to the point where I have to imagine that influenced um, some of the decisions that were made, you know, uh, in awarding you this, this contract. Um, how has that been working with, you know, the, the national park service and just um, seems like to me that, that, you know, they probably have to look at you as, as quite an encouraging uh, vendor to work with. Um, you know, we, we've had a great relationship with the park service so far. Um, you know, I will say like when we started thinking about this, we, we didn't know what the RFP was going to look like. We didn't know what kind of research um, the park service had done about these courses. Um, and as they issued the, the the proposed RFP, um, they also issued a number of cultural landscape reports about the three golf courses, uh, which was a deep dive into their history, how they've evolved over time, as well as their recommendations of what should happen at these courses going forward. And we were very, very encouraged that uh, the, the Park Service, um, their recommendations very much aligned with with what um, we envisioned at those courses. Um, you know, the, the Park Service is all about historic preservation. It's all about creating wonderful environments for the citizens in the United States to enjoy. And, um, you know, we're, we're excited to work with them. Obviously it's the federal government and, and it's a relatively large bureaucracy. And so we're, we're, we're under no illusions that things are gonna go quickly, but we're really encouraged by the fact that um, we believe our, 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 our um, visions align. And yeah, I think that's part of the reason why they chose us is because we basically, um, I wouldn't say we parroted back what they suggested, but our suggestions were very much, very much in line with what they, what they envisioned. How would, how would you describe the vision of the National Links Trust and, and the plans that you all are pursuing for those three golf courses? So, um, we sort of have three pillars of what we we want to ac accomplish. Um, 
uh, you know, or or three sort of main guiding points, and then we believe that, that through those three things we'll have the greatest impact in our in our community. Um, and that's affordability, accessibility, and then you know, Mike and I, coming from our golf architecture background, believe that the the golf courses should be engaging. Um, really, the affordability and the accessibility, I think, are the two most important. You know, we are we've we're set up as a five hundred one c three. Um, so that we can raise money philanthropically uh, to make these improvements so that uh, once we finish these improvements, we don't have to pass on that cost of that rehabilitation to the end user, to the golfer. Um, and, and so, you know, I think that's a differentiator. I think the park service was concerned about um, someone coming in, putting a bunch of money into this and then end up charging, you know, $120, $150 for, um, uh, to play the golf courses because that's not what they've been. They, they've been, uh, you know, very democratic little d democratic places uh, from the moment they opened to to now. And I think that was important to them to to keep that. And that's very much what we want to do. Um, you know, we want to make sure that it doesn't cost too much to play. We want to make sure that everyone is welcome. Um, we want to make sure that we're reaching out to typically underserved communities to try to get them to come use not just the golf course, uh, golf courses, but the facilities, because they're wonderful sort of oases in a very urban environment here in D.C. And so, um, you know, we've got, a, we've got a lot of challenges ahead of us, but it, it's they're really incredible spots and just an incredible opportunity to do, do a lot of good in the community. You've got some uh, some pretty big names involved with uh these projects uh, a lot of people who you know from around the country and around the golfing world who clearly share in this vision um, what are some of the um, details of those partnerships so um, you know the the three golf courses golf course architects that we've got associated with the, the different properties are um, Gil Hans uh, and Jim Wagner at uh, at Rock Creek um, Gil and Jim were in town. Uh, geez, the timelines are so tough, but I guess it's I guess it was uh, two summers ago. Um, with COVID, all, all the dates kind of get messed up. But they were they were in town redoing Burning Tree, and uh, we got them out to the Rock Creek and had them poke around and look around and um, uh, you know sort of expressed our vision of what we wanted to do there, and and they they could see. Uh, the potential, but also the incredible benefit could have to to golf in in DC and also uh, to junior golf um, specifically. And they signed on to do that pro bono, um, which is great. You know, they've got a lot of experience working with William Flynn Designs, um, and you know, I've been very fortunate to work with Gil and Jim over the years on a number of different projects, um, and they're, they're just the best and uh, just a lot of fun to work with. They got a great crew. Um, so we're really looking forward to getting in the dirt, dirt with them. Um, and then uh, over at Langston, um, we are working with Bo Welling. Um, you know, Bo uh, is is uh, doing some great work now. He's, he's sort of, I think his hallmark is building sort of very fun, um, playable golf courses. And um, you know, he he works uh, he works a lot with Tiger Woods. Um, and you know, Bo's a, a really uh, creative, intelligent guy who really thinks about projects holistically, um, thinks about uh, creating spaces and places for, for people to interact. And so we're excited to work with him over at Langston. And then 
uh, at East Potomac, we've we've got Tom Doak um, lined up to work on the reversible um, 18 hole Travis uh, course, the blue course. Um, and you know, Tom, Mike, and I, you know, both worked with uh, for Tom for a number of years, and Mike most recently um, over at Washington Golf and Country Club, which just came back online this spring. And um, you know, so Tom Tom sort of goes without saying he's he's uh, as good as it gets, and um, you know, his experience with the, the loop, the reversible aspect of the loop, plus uh, his experience consulting at any number of, of Travis courses um, from Garden City to, you know, Brian Schneider's work down at Hollywood. To, you know, there's, there's a ton, he's got a ton of experience on Travis and, um, you know, we're excited to work, work with him on that. The cool thing about the East Potomac stuff is that, you know, we've got detailed plans for the whole golf course plus every single green. So, um, you know, while, while Doak's redoing uh, the Lido out there in Wisconsin using, you know, the old plans and Peter Flory's rendition uh, of, the, of all that stuff, like we, we could do something pretty similar here at, at, uh, at East Potomac. So that's, that's pretty neat. Yeah, that is neat. Um... You know, obviously you got a, a a lot of fundraising to do between uh now and you know groundbreaking and uh dirt moving and all these sites but you know, is is there do you have a sequence in mind for how those will come about over the next uh you know few years and beyond yeah i mean i i timelines are are really really tough and things are fluid but um just from a business standpoint rock creek and and langston are the ones that don't perform nearly as well as, as East Potomac. So I think our, our, our best guess is we tackle one of those uh, first and we may break down, break those down into sort of component parts so that we can kind of get to uh, working on stuff sooner than later. Um, so, you know, we might try to um, really improve the range at Langston in conjunction with the Howard University golf team um, who's, who's looking to have a, a you know, very, very uh, top-notch uh, practice facility. Um, or we may look at putting in a, a range at um, Rock Creek. I mean, we are going to be putting a range at Rock Creek, but we may put that in first while working the golf around it so that things aren't shut down as long. And, and you know, obviously putting in a range is a less, uh, less, less expensive hurdle than trying to do the whole thing at once. And so, you know, there's a lot of different things that we're looking at. You know, we've got to get through the planning and permitting process as well as the fundraising. And so uh, these things take time and we're anxious to get going as much as we possibly can. But, um, you know, it's going to it's going to be a while. Uh, you know, I think I think um, one of the things we have to manage is that people's expectations are that that uh, this all this stuff is going to happen really quickly. Um, unfortunately, it's not um, another uh, expectation is that the federal government is paying for this stuff. Um, it's not. Uh, we've we've got to go out and, and raise the money, and you know we we've, we're we're starting out strong. Uh, we've got a great grassroots organization, and there's just incredible uh, support all throughout the country and through DC with people buying merchandise and contributing to our uh, annual giving campaign, the Capital Club, and you know, we just got to keep growing on that. And, you know, at the same time, we've got to go out and, and find some big dollar donors to, to take down um, some larger chunks of this so that we can really get get moving. And uh, I feel like we're, you know, we're getting there. We got, we've got a, uh, the beginning of a team in place. We hired our new executive director, Sinclair Edie. Um, he came on board in mid-December. We've got a number two in place. 
Uh, he started just a couple of weeks ago in mid-January. And so, you know, we're, we're, it's no, it's, we're transitioning from a all volunteer army to uh, uh, having some paid staff, um, which will really, I think, jumpstart some of those fundraising and planning and permitting efforts. So uh, it's a, it's an exciting time. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, yeah, it's been fun watching that progress develop. And, you know, on the fundraising side, I, I think one thing that's really cool about what you've been doing, obviously you've got, um, you know, a very you know, DC oriented product, um, but you've got a lot of interest from, you know, around the country. I mean, I think people really do see this as a, you know, almost a national monument uh, to public golf and, um, you know, with some of the, the auctions and things and the, the merchandise that y'all been selling online, um, seems like there's there's quite a bit of interest from around the country. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think I think that's very fair to say. You know, we, you know, we're the nation's capital, right? And um, so there's there's a lot of attention on DC in general. Um, these courses are on Park Service land, and so um, you know they're everyone's golf courses. They're, these are the nation's golf courses. Our, our plan is not to go sort of the Tory Pines Beth Page model, where you know if you're local, it costs X, and if you if you're from out of town, it costs five X. Um, our, our, our plan is to, to make uh, everything cost X, um, whether you're from, from Northeast DC or Nebraska, you guys, you know, the same federal tax dollars that, that, you know, you, you guys, everyone's contributing to the same, same pile. And, uh, you know, we believe that access should be, should be the same. Um, and, and I think that's part of it, but also I think people realize that, that there is a, a larger movement, um, people are understanding how important municipal golf is, how important affordable golf is um, to both uh, the health of the game, but also to the health of the, the, their communities. Um, examples like Winter Park 9, um, you know, it, it, it's amazing if you if you invest in, in golf and uh, do it in a smart fashion and, um, and do outreach, um, these places can become really vibrant parts of their community. And and so I think people see that and they see the potential here in DC to, to do something um, at an even grander scale. Um, and I know that there are people from around the country who want us to succeed so that they can go to their municipalities and say, look what they did in DC. Um, look at the impact it's had on the community. Uh, and and uh, we should do something similar here. And, and, that, and that's what we wanna be. We, we wanna do this right. We wanna be as transparent as possible about how we're doing it. We want to um, have other communities learn from the, our mistakes. We want other communities to um, to be able to to point to our successes. And so, yeah, I think there's a lot of national support because people really care about municipal golf and affordable golf. Yeah, it's funny, you know, you say that about using uh, the work you're doing as a model. I was having a conversation the other day with Noel Bridges from Austin, Texas, who's one of the ringleaders over there, the Save Muni uh, effort. Um, there, there's so there, there's quite a few of these almost high profile, uh, initiatives happening, you know, simultaneously. People like to throw around that, the word munisance, uh, which I think is, is a fun term. Um, but, but municipal golf really is having a, a bit of a moment in America. And it, it, it does seem that, you know, when you kind of layer in the backdrop of conversations about, you know, race and, you know, inequality and, uh, numerous other aspects that our country's dealing with. I mean, the timing for serious conversation about the future of municipal golf just couldn't be more perfect. Um, what, what do you, what do you think that, um, that, that movement across the country means both for what you're doing 
in DC and just, uh, in, you know, where do you see that going maybe over the next few years? Um, well, I think you've touched on a couple of different elements. I mean, it's, it, it's in the grander scheme of golf. If, um, there aren't affordable, accessible places to play, then the game is going to get really small. Um, and if there aren't, uh, places, um, in urban environments for people to play, uh, then it's going to be get very, it's going to get become more and more or less and less diverse, which is not something I think anyone wants to see. Um, and so, uh, these urban municipal golf courses, I think are essential, um, to uh, creating a more vibrant, diverse game um, that's more representative of our country. Um, and I think you're, you're right that the time, there's a lot of different forces at play where it makes this more important than ever. And you know, we're excited to be part of um, that process, that conversation. And, and um, you know, historically our courses have been um, diverse places, but probably not as diverse as they can or should be. And so, you know, we're going to do a lot of outreach to underserved communities and try to get them to the golf course and try to get them to understand that, that um, the golf course is part of their neighborhood, not something that's outside of it or shut off. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're excited to work with a number of community partners. Um, a guy who's on our board, Craig Kirby, um, is the head of golf, my future, my game has been working in this space for, for years and years. Um, We've got an agreement um, with the uh, Western Golf Association and Evan Scholars um, to uh, run a, a, a caddy program at, at Langston and East Potomac, hopefully starting this uh, June. Um, and, you know, our hope is that in four or five years time, uh, there'll be Evan Scholars who have caddied at these courses. Uh, it's a great program. They're subsidizing it for the golfer. Really, uh, really great opportunity. Um, you know, we're working with youth on course. And so hopefully the barrier to entry of, of having kids be able to play at these courses will be, will be lessened um, through, through that program. And, you know, there's just so many people who are doing great stuff, including the first tee. We've got a great relationship with the first tee of greater DC um, that, you know, it, it's, 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 it's going to be a long process, but, you know, by creating, by rehabbing these courses and making them, um, even better places, I think that's only going to be um, healthy for the game uh, in, in in this area and, and hopefully uh, help help throughout the U.S. by being an example. Are you getting some you know, engagement or you know, even curiosity from the corporate interests uh, of golf, you know, manufacturers all the way up to, um, you know, I know you got a great partner with uh, Troon who's helping operate for you. Um, what's that world look like? Are people calling and want to know more about what you're doing? Yeah. I mean, I think it's early days. Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, it's been easier for us to get our message across, um, to the people, um, who really are on the sort of ground level of caring about the game and that, you know, through Instagram and social media and, and that sort of, uh, uh, but, you know, every day we're getting our, our message out further. And I think the sort of big corporations, um, you know, it, it's a, it's a great time to be talking about this because of all the things we just talked about. And, you know, we're, we're, we're starting to have those conversations again, we're, you know, it's early days. And so we believe that, um, you know, there people are going to want to be involved in this project. And, you know, we've, we've seen that um, at a small scale so far, um, you know, we've had a couple of uh, corporate 
donations that to really help out. And you know, we, we look forward to kind of continuing that conversation with other other corporations. Right now, um, how big of a um, impact do these three golf courses have on uh, just making golf part of the uh, the culture in DC? I mean, I, I, it seems to me like it's kind of a private club heavy uh, part of the world. Uh, so if you know if you're Joe Bag of Donuts and you want to go hit balls or play golf, um, how important are these three courses to uh, that clientele right now in the community? Um, you know, I, I think it's a good question. I think, um, and this is one of the things that we've got to change is, is that East Potomac is, is a thriving place. Um, it, it is a busy place. The driving range, um, is always full. It, it's it, East Potomac has, has historically been, um, a really, really vibrant place. Um, Langston and Rock Creek, uh, have had, and through their histories, I've had different periods where they've been busy, but the last, you know, 15, 20 years, it's really fallen off. Um, and, and, you know, that's for a number of different reasons, some, um, you know, deferred maintenance, uh, lack of marketing. You know, I, honestly, you know, I grew up in D.C. and, um, you know, didn't play a whole lot of golf growing up, um, really got the bug right before I went to college. Um, but, you know, it. it Everyone knows that East Potomac's there because you drive by, you drive over it, you fly over it um, when you're coming into to Reagan. Um, but the other courses are sort of tucked away. And so, uh, you know, part of our mission is to let's just let people know that they're there, get them there. You know, it's, 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 it's uh, just in the last sort of six months, you know, there's I've played a bunch out at Langston with people who, who had never been there before. And they, they walk away and they're like, wow, this is an incredible golf course, an incredible place. And so that's part of our challenge is, is, is breaking people out of that. They're sort of, uh, you know, what they, what they, they don't, what they don't know, but also their, their sort of mis- misconceptions of, of what's there. Um, so, yeah. And it's only going to get better as we invest in the properties. For those who maybe have, uh, you know, aren't familiar with the golf courses and where they are in town, you, you talked about, you know, East Potomac kind of being right there on the flight pattern for Reagan. Um, how would you describe them on the map uh, to somebody who you know isn't all that familiar with the the scene there? So you know, DC is sort of a a diamond with the southwest corner kind of sheared off. Um, uh, East Potomac is sort of in that sort of sheared off area along the Potomac River. Um, Langston is sort of uh, just north of the of the eastern corner. Um, and just just a little north of north of that, um, and you know, for anyone who's been to DC and knows where RFK Stadium is, um, that uh, Langston is I don't know, it's uh, half a mile north of RFK Stadium along the Anacostia River, um, and then Rock Creek is, you know, Rock Creek's an incredible place. It, it, Rock Creek Park itself is the largest urban park in the United States, and. Um, Rock Creek Golf Course occupies 100 acres of that park, right, and that's right, sort of in the center of the city, a little bit uh, on the western western half of the north, in the northwest quadrant, but a little bit on the western, just a little bit west of the center of the city. Um, and it's an incredible location. Um, there are an incredible number of of families that live within a couple miles of of that golf course, and and that's part of our thinking is um, to to 
a put in a driving range so that people can learn to play the game at the driving range and then maybe graduate to the par three course that Gil and Jim uh, are proposing to put in. And then, um, you know, be able to go on to the regulation length nine hole course that's going to use um, as many of the William Flame corridors and green sites as, as possible. Uh, so, you know, it, it, it's, uh, it's, it's, I think it has potential to be this sort of mecca for junior golf in, in the area and, and really be a, a really cool place. Um, and, and, you know, to, to sort of appeal to non golfers, um, we're talking about the location in this great urban park. Uh, right now, it doesn't basically have any F&B operation. I think you can get like a Gatorade and a water, or maybe a beer, um, but really there's no F&B. And um, it sits up the sort of the clubhouse area, it sits up on this hill and you get long views. It's just really unique for for uh, an urban environment. And so our hope is to, to build in a, uh, you know, a, a decent F&B operation where a lot of outdoor seating where young families can can come and have the kids run around a little bit in a very natural beautiful setting and um have the dad and mom enjoy a you know a beer and a glass of wine and um you know we think that it can be a, a you know really change the place in terms of the feel and uh, of it right now because right now it has a loyal following uh, which is great we love that um but it, it's almost like they're the only users um, yeah. and that it's a big part of the city to be used by so few people and we're we're excited to to uh to get more people there both golfers and not golfers I, I that's very cool i i love the idea of you know uh golf courses as parks obviously there's a lot of things you, you got to be careful with but you know particularly when you talk about kids and getting you know kids uh, hooked on the game, you know, giving them uh, an, an opportunity to see the game as something you play, uh, something that's fun, and then giving them an environment that's you know just really rich and um, uh, you know, gives them a, a taste of you know just just how wonderful the game can be is is so key. You know, earlier you were talking about you know, you didn't really get bit by the golf bug until. Um, a little later, um, you know, in your collegiate days, but how, so tell me about that. How did, how did you get bit by, uh, the bug? Um, so I think it was the summer before, uh, I went to college and, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, just a number of my friends from high school, we, we, uh, we just started playing more. Um, you know, one of, one of the places that we played was a municipal golf course down on the Eastern shore of Maryland called the hog's neck, um, near Easton, Maryland. And, uh, you know, growing up, that's where I probably played the most with my dad, who wasn't a huge golfer. Um, but we would go out there, you know, some years we'd go out 12 times, other years we'd go out once or twice, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't part of our regular routine, but we kind of knocked it around. And then right before college started playing a bunch and then, I was fortunate to go to Yale, which has an incredible golf course. And, and that was sort of my, uh, you know, my baptism. That's where I really got into golf architecture and really got the bug. And, um, and you know, I haven't, haven't looked back. I, you know, my, my buddy Colin Sheehan, who's a partner with me with Outpost Club and is now the Yale golf coach, you know, that's where I met him. And he, he would joke that, that he, you know, he would sneak me. He was on the golf, golf team there. <laughs> And here I was pretty much a, a beginner, you know, a little bit past the beginner. And he would sneak me out there because I was, I didn't want to pay the $17 greens fee. So he, he would tell the starter that I was a recruit 
for the golf team. And, you know, he'd just be sitting there going, don't top it, don't top it off the first tee, don't top it off the first tee. And of course, <laughs> you know, I'd top it and, you know, I'd yell, it was like that pond down there. And we just, you know, I'd just top it and just pick up my tee and just go because it was just so embarrassing. But uh, I mean, it's an incredible place. Um, it's an incredible golf course and, and it's such a huge different, different environment, hugely different environment from um, New Haven, which is very urban. And then you get out to the golf course and it's just, you know, it's, oasis surrounded by trees and uh it's an incredible place so that, that's that's how i kind of really got into it and then started reading golf architecture books and contemplating uh a career in golf architecture and then then uh you know i was like i'm a i'm a history major from yale how am i going to get into golf architecture and so i went and worked for travel and leisure golf uh the magazine for a couple of years um and then um was out in San Francisco trying to figure out what I was going to do. I was going to apply to law school or business school because it's kind of what you do if you're a couple of years out of Yale and you don't really know what you want to do with your life. And uh, Colin and I actually went up, um, we did a road trip right before the 2000 US Open at Pebble Beach. We did a road trip up up north, um, drove up to, to Bandon Dunes and um, uh, toured around the first 13 holes of Pacific Dunes, which had just been hydro-seeded with with Josh Lesnick from Kemper Sports and um, drank, you know, drank a couple beers while the sun was setting. And I just sort of had this epiphany that, um, that I wanted to be involved in building golf courses. And, and um, that, you know, I wasn't too old that I couldn't figure out a way to get into the industry. And uh, I remember, I remember sort of having that aha moment and, uh, and then uh, decided to, you know, go to go to, graduate school and get my master's in landscape architecture, try to get into the golf course industry that way. And sort of in the meantime, I, you know, I had known Tom Doak a little bit from my days at Travel and Leisure Golf, you know, calling him to fact check a couple of stories and get quotes and that sort of thing. And Tom said, well, if you, you know, if you're looking for work, I got a, I've got a, you know, I need a laborer up at the sheep ranch. This was a little bit, probably a year later than this. Uh, and so I went and worked for Tom with a rake and a shovel out at the sheep ranch and, um, yeah, I think his guys thought I you know, worked hard enough and liked being around me. And so I got invited to work on other projects with, with Tom and his guys and um, worked, worked on and off with them for on a, a number of projects over the next sort of five or six years. And then, you know, obviously worked, obviously started with a rake and shuffle, but moved my way up to Sand Pro and then, uh, you know, a, a skid steer and a loader and uh, excavator bulldozers ended up doing some shaping um, for Tom, did some sh I shaped the Prairie Club with Kyle Franz for Tom Lehman and Chris Franz, and when and, that, and that's sort of when I first got hooked in with Gil and Jim. Uh, worked worked with them some, um, and then sort of oh oh nine um, things obviously were slowing down. Uh, that's when I with Colin and and the third partner Quentin Lutz um, came up with the idea of, of the Outpost Club, and have done that for the last 10, 11 years. That's very cool. Um, yeah. It was, yeah. Tough. it was tough to leave, you know, building golf courses. It's, oh, it's I bet. so much fun. But um, at the time, it looked like if I wanted to do that, um, it was going to spend a lot of time in Asia and, uh, you know, being away from my wife. And uh, it was just not something that, that uh, I was really looking forward to. And luckily, the, the Outpost Club, uh, we sort of came up with the idea. And it was actually kind of a pivot from building golf courses or building a development or resort or, um, to a, a, a national golf society, and um, you know, I was able to able to stick close to home and now get to play more golf than 
I would have ever done if I was in the uh, in the golf course construction business. Well, life's funny how it throws things at you like that. I, I remember when I was a, a teenager, I, you know, my first job was working at the golf course and, you know, working my way up to mowing the greens. And I swear to this day, I think back, I think that might have been the best job I ever had. Uh, I just, I love the rhythm of it. I love the peacefulness of it. And I, I, I always imagine, you know, obviously there's a lot of hard work that goes with it, but I always imagine like, you know, as you're sitting there describing those different uh, tools of the trade, you know, and, and shaping out golf courses, I, I would imagine that's a, a job you can really get lost in, um, you know, as you're out there, you know, on the rake, so to speak. Um, pretty, pretty, pretty good way, uh, almost a little bit of Zen going on out there. I would yeah, think. absolutely. My, my buddy Kai Golby, I think was asked the question, what was the biggest advancement in, in golf course construction? And, and, and he said that the iPod, um, <laughs> because, you know, these guys, you, get, you go out there and you, you turn on music and you, you can just really get into a, just as, as you said, sort of a Zen like place and, um, build really cool, creative stuff. And, um, yeah, I, I I certainly miss those days where you know I was out at the Prairie Club and the you know the, I had to build two really cool bunkers and you just plug in music and you and you just go and be creative and you know walk back and see the, see your work and um, there's something very very satisfying to building a golf course um, because it, it's a sort of a finite thing that you can you can uh, be like at the end you're like I, that's we've accomplished that and that's and that's really neat and then you get to go back and play it um, I know talking to a lot of guys who are still in the industry, they would lament the fact that they don't get to go back uh, and play it nearly as much as they, their work as, as much as they would like. But, um, you know, it's left for guys like me to go, go play it, which is, which is okay by me. Yeah, no, no doubt. I always think like, you know, they're, they're, I've read, you know, a handful of things about, you know, Gil and his process. And yeah, I think about him being in, you know, on the dozer with, you know, the, uh, some some classic dead tracks blaring yeah. and uh, yeah. so when I'm playing his golf courses, I, I sit there and I think like I wonder what song he's listening to. Uh, you know where 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 was uh, Jerry and the boys playing right, when right, right. when this whole got shaked out? Yeah. <laughs> um, talking about uh, Outpost Club, you know that's that's such a cool endeavor. I've I, it's one of those things that I feel like. Um, I, I've always, I'm always amazed at how the world of social media has, you know, opened a lot of eyes and, uh, you know, allowed for golfers in particular to go down the rabbit hole of discovering a lot of things that maybe they didn't know existed. And, you know, for me, one of those things was, you know, once I started seeing posts of, you know, uh, these various golf societies, uh, and outpost was probably the first one that I remember looking at and going, Whoa, 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 what is this? This is, this is different. And it, and it's got a vibe that really, you know, struck me. Um, tell me a little bit about how you and Colin, you know, concocted that idea. Um, it actually goes back to the Prairie club. Um, Kyle and I were out there, Kyle friends and I were out there shaping that thing. And, and, um, the, we were staying at the rain motel, um, this one story motel in Valentine, Nebraska that had a red neon light lining the, the building. Um, so even in the middle of the night, there was sort of a red hue at your, at your window. Um, we, um, the, the owner of the motel sort of said, Hey, if you like that land at the Prairie club, you got to see my ranch down, down South of town. And so we went and checked it out and sure enough, I mean, it's just an absolutely incredible piece of ground for golf and, um, unlike Sand Hills or the Prairie Club or Valley Neal, even um, 
it, yeah, it had this incredible heaving topography, but it had a, a 300 acre spring fed lake right in the middle of it. So you could route a golf course or two where you, you wouldn't or lose your bearings. You could always use that lake um, for the most part as, as a, uh, as a, as a grounding point. Um, and Kyle and I spent some time after work goofing around out there and figured out a routing that would work. It was really, really cool. Um, and so I called up Colin and Quentin. All right, so I called, sorry, I called up Colin and said, you got to come check this thing out. Um, Colin and I had been banding around the idea for a couple of years of doing a, a multiple destination um, club. Um, you know, rather than having some rich guy pluck me out of a bulldozer or an excavator and say, and say, like, come build my incredible golf course. We sort of figured we would have to find the land, put together the deal, raise the money, um, do the whole thing. And, and Colin had some experience in golf course development, um, having worked with Mark Parson at Castle Stewart um, and at Bayonne, he'd worked there. And so, you know, we, we thought this was something that we could do. We knew we didn't have all the answers, but we thought we, we knew enough to be able to go find the people that had the answers. Um, and so Colin came out, he brought Quentin Lutz, who's our third partner, who Colin had met a number of years before at, at a uh, golf junket, I think at the opening of Primland Resort, um, and they'd hit it off. And, and Quentin had experience, uh, he'd done international business development for, for Art Hills. And so Quentin came out, they, they saw the land, they fell in love with it. We um, put together a prospectus, and, and the idea was to build a, you know, again, a multiple destination course out of the way, club, excuse me, um, uh, out of the way, find sand, build things inexpensively, uh, and rather than having a, a small membership at a high price point, try to sell a lot of memberships at a low price point with a low dues um, so that people felt like even if they only used the club once a year, they got value out of their membership. And, and so that was the concept. And we put together a prospectus and, and went and tried to raise money. And um, that was the fall of, of 2008. So <laughs> obviously the world had completely changed and um, all these people sort of said, we like this concept. We, you know, we like your, you know, like the, the, the land looks incredible, but you're just not going to find money right now. The world is, the world is ending. Um, and so we sort of went back to the drawing board and said, well, you know, one of the ideas that we had to, to build up the club was to host events all across the country to sell, sell memberships, but also build camaraderie amongst the people who had already signed up to, to become part of this this thing, which we, which was by the way the working name was the Outpost Club, and it makes a lot of sense when you're talking about a destination club in the middle of nowhere, Nebraska, mm -hmm. um, and that's why our our you know our our logo has got a a, a prairie windmill, um, and you know we just, we just sort of said like okay well maybe we actually don't need the club to do this well let's let's sort of take a page out of the British Golf Society models, um, and let's see if if some of these clubs here in the U.S. would be open to welcoming groups of, of um, vetted private club golfers who understand the culture, understand the etiquette, who uh, treat the courses with respect, walk, take caddies, play fast. Um, and sure enough, our timing for that actually was, was pretty good in, in the middle of 2009, where clubs were looking for you know, outside revenue, they were looking for exposure, they were looking for ways to introduce their clubs to new, to new people. Um, and so we put together a, a you know, re relatively modest offering. Um, we raised a little bit of money and we launched in February of 2010 um, in New York City, uh, not far from where the USGA was founded, Colin likes to say. Um, and we were very fortunate. We got a guy named John Bannon, who's the super well-connected guy in New York. Um, 
to be our first captain and he helped us get a, a really good crowd at our launch party and sold a bunch of memberships that night and we're sort of off off to the races from there and um you know it's it's just a group of really passionate golfers who love the game who love to travel and play great places and and then maybe talk about it after afterwards over you know a good meal and a glass of wine or a beer um and you know it's it's a group of golf nuts um and we've done it because uh we're golf nuts like that that we built a we built a group of of ourselves and um i think you know the people who are members really really enjoy it um we've got a great team in place it's definitely grown um past probably where we thought it would be. We now have three PGA pros on staff, um, Mario Belomo, Jay Freitag, and, and Steve Scott, um, who, who people might recognize uh, for, for having a little match against Tiger Woods. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, it's just, it, it's just, a, it's just been an absolute blast. I, I, I've said I've, I've had the best job in the world for a long, long time. And I thought I had it pretty good when I was building golf courses, but this has been, this has been even better. I've, I've traveled all over the world with great plays, people playing, playing the best places. And, um, you know, I, I, to me, the, the thing that probably the most rewarding is, is hearing about and seeing all the friendships that have formed because of, of the Outpost Club. Um, I've got a good buddy who's, who's a very social guy. Um, and he's 61 or two right now. And, um, he told me the other day that, that nine out of the 10 people he talks to the most on the phone are Outpost Club members. And, you know, he, he didn't know any of them more than eight or nine years ago. And now, now they're all some of his closest friends, which is, which is pretty darn cool. What do, you, what do you think it is about golf that triggers that? Because, you know, I, I have a hard time explaining to sometimes my, you know, family and wife and even some, some of my close friends here in Tallahassee that I've got this, you know, network of, you know, for lack of a better description, golf degenerates around the around the country that i spend you know a lot of time talking to um and and really not that much time in person but um not as much as i'd like but but what do you think what do you think it is about the game that that triggers that you know i think it's i think there's so many different things right i mean there are people who are really into equipment there are people who are really into courses there's people who are you know into you know partying while they play golf i mean there's there's so many different elements and i think um everyone falls on different spectrums of of where they are on all of those different things and you know i think like you you can find kindred spirits very easily and you don't have to mesh everything doesn't have to mesh it's just if if you're really into this part of the game you know you want to hear about their passion for some other part of it and it's just it's just, it's just like it's just constantly bumping up against these just passions. And, um, and then when you do get spent time together, it's really quality time. It's not, you know, yelling at each other at a crowded bar, um, back when we used to do those sort of things. Um, you know, it's your, you're outside in nature. Um, and there's something spiritual about that. And you make these connections, um, whether it's, you know, sharing a sunset round at, at Bandon Dunes or, or playing foursomes at Royal Sink Ports, uh, you know, they share these experiences and they become part of your, your vocabulary and your memories. And it's just so easy to, to create friendships and, and with those, with those shared touch points. Yeah. I think that's incredibly well said. Um, one of the things that I find, you know, really cool about the Outpost Club, and I think it's, it's gotta be a pretty key ingredient to your success is, 
Yeah, you've you've created uh, some culture and some identity with the club. You know, I, I love the idea that you have your own, you know, um, you know, tartan pattern for your jackets and traditions that you've built. Uh, the the piece that uh, uh, was in the Golfers Journal a, a year or two ago uh, about the punch bowl and just everything about the Outbows Club, I thought was just just brilliant. I mean, really, you know, from a you know, creating culture and and even a sense of place when you don't have a place, uh, is, is really impressive. What's the, what was the thinking kind of in mindset behind that? Um, well, I mean, look, I, I think we wanted very much to not just be a service that helped people play golf courses that, you know, that didn't interest us. Um, it, it, it what interested us was creating this community, this club, um, the society and, um, you know, I would love to say that we sat back down in 2009 and said, this is how we're going to do it. Um, but that's, that wouldn't be true. It was, okay, let's, let's, let's start this and let's figure out how to do that. And, you know, one of the things was creating a, a tartan jacket and, uh, you know, we have this crazy guy, Seth Keel, good friend. Um, and he's a, he's a member at Royal Sinkports. And so we took a, our first spring, we, we played a match against Royal Sinkports and, and Royal Sinkports has this incredible green striped jacket that uh, their guys wear. And it's very distinctive. And whenever they travel, they wear it. And so Seb sort of said, well, we could do something with a, with a, a tweed. And I was like, yeah, that's absolutely perfect. Let's do that because we want, we want something that's recognizable that our members are, are proud to wear and, and, you know, that when we go travel, people know who we are. It's great. When we roll, when we roll into the Royal St. George's Clubhouse, you know, I think most Americans, they, they fly pretty much underneath the radar. But we, we walk in in our tweeds and we go hang it up. And sure enough, you know, invariably, one of the old guys will, will say, what, what, what do you got there? What is that? And then, you know, it starts, <laughs> it starts a conversation and, and it's great. Um, and so it's little touches like that, that we looked at a lot of, a lot to the UK for inspiration and, um, have, have built up over time that, um, I, again, I think little touch points that create the, the community, it's just been, um, it's been massive. And, you know, I appreciate you recognizing that it's not, it's, uh, you know, again, it's not anything that we sit down and say, we have to do this, but it is something that was important to us. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I just always have a great admiration for that level of uh, intentionality, and it's not easy to create that. I mean, it takes you know, it takes a lot of commitment, and um, you know, you have to just be able to uh, weave that story of who you are through through everything that you do, which is um, uh, you know, just just takes a little effort. Uh, which yeah, I, I love. and you know what though, like if 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 your members, if the people who are who are in the organization have pride in the organization, it becomes a lot easier because the new people come in and they see that, and 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 they kind of they get on board pretty quickly. They they understand like okay, this is not just a service. This is this is um, something that's got depth to it that that is meaningful to a lot of people. And uh, you know we're we're really fortunate that that so many of our members take such pride in our in our group. I think that's a, a great point. You know, I, I know, you know, with your background in landscape architecture, probably a lot of, uh, you know, discussions about, um, public spaces and, um, I've in a variety of my former life, I used to do, I used to run an organization in Tallahassee called the Tallahassee downtown improvement authority. And, you know, we did a lot of placemaking and, 
um, I, I just always had just, I was always drawn to places that were able to uh, inject a community's sense of pride into uh, physical spaces. And I just always thought that was the most impressive thing when you can find that uh, because it really, you know, makes a case for what a community believes in. And then, you know, I think that translates very well to golf too. I mean, when you go to a golf course or a club uh, or even a municipal facility and you can get that feeling when you, you know, walk from the parking lot on into the facility, it, it really changes everything about the experience. And um, I'm, I'm thrilled to see, you know, that same mentality uh, that injects that with the outpost club, you know, coming to facilities like what you have in DC. I think that's going to end up being a, a big, big part of why those will be successful long-term. Yeah. I used to, I used to joke that um, back when I was building golf courses, that the, my, the course at Yale that had the most influence on my day-to-day life was conversational Spanish. Um, <laughs> but now looking back, you know, there's no doubt in my mind that it was um, an architecture class um, that was taught by the great Vincent Scully um, who, you know, taught my dad back in the early sixties. And so he was, he's an, he was an institution um, and just an incredible uh, uh, teacher and incredible thinker. And, you know, if you get anyone that had an opportunity to pick up one of his books, it's definitely worth, worth looking at. And, um, you know, so much of what he talked about in this sort of introductory architecture class was about spaces and um, public spaces and how, you know, how important they are. And, um, you know, I feel like where I am in my life now is, 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 uh, much more about that than than anything else, whether it's um, you know the D, the TC courses or what we do with the Outpost Club or some of the other consulting work I'm I've done at places like the Match Club and um, I'm working working with with Zach Blair at the Tree Farm. Um, so you know hope to be able to imbibe um, a little bit of that sense, uh, thought into into that place and um, you know just a lot of it really is important how we all interact is is um it's how we enjoy life and you know if you if you're uncomfortable in the space uh you know you're not gonna you're not gonna be happy and and so um, creating those spaces is is essential yeah i I, it's funny zach's got a good keen eye for that same same stuff and um i i send him little nuggets sometimes where i'll you know the 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 uh type of land uh, out there near Aiken where that project is going to be built is very reminiscent of what we have here in, in North Florida and Southwest Georgia um, in many ways. And so I see a lot of little things in some of my favorite shops and stores that uh, I'll send to him every now and then I go, Hey, I was like, this is the kind of, you know, uh, a lot of the, you know, the old uh, turpentine type stuff and uh, you know, farm accompaniments and stuff. And I sent it to him I was like, man, in, injecting this stuff into that project will be so cool. It's always fun to talk about that, uh, that type of, um, possibilities. But, um, I know, uh, you know, again, really cool. I mean, I could probably sit here and talk to you about this stuff for, for hours on end. I, I'd love to learn a little bit more about, you know, some of the things you're working on, but maybe we'll save that for a, a cocktail post golf one day soon. Um, I appreciate your time, Will, and uh, diving into what you know you're working on in DC, and tell me a little bit about the background of Outpost and other endeavors. Uh, and hopefully, uh, our uh, you know as as things start to change a little bit, we can get back on the road, travel a little bit more, and 
hopefully I'll see you either on a golf course soon or uh, poking around somewhere interesting. That'd be great. I've really enjoyed the, the chat and, you know, thank you for all you're doing for the game too. So um, it's, uh, you know, with, with people who make golf their life, um, you know, it's just, it's always great to see. So thank you. You got it, man. Uh, same to you, pal. And I'll look forward to when we can have uh, uh, the next conversation. Awesome. Thanks, Jack. Cheers, Will. Appreciate it. Bye.